0: Sometimes, there aren't sufficient words for a moment, or a season, or a feeling. The other side of that coin is that sometimes the wild, the inexplicable, the unexpected serve the blessed purpose of breaking the words we're used to using, and inviting us to make something new from their pieces. This is one way to talk about poetry. I think of the way the scriptures in my own religious tradition open with poetry. In the strange shadow of timelessness, orderlessness, and the creative will of a being beyond comprehension. That same collection of histories and prophecies and reflections and wisdom texts ends with poetry. In the blazing light of a hopeful future beyond either chaos or order, beyond death, or even time itself. Poetry is, among other things, a way to say... There is more here? I can't hand it to you plainly, so I'll point in its direction. And in so doing, I will honor the complex and beautiful reality of, well, reality. For Padraig Tuma, many of the realities that frame his personal and cultural history necessitated a treatment and use of language that bent towards the poetic. Padraig's work is born of political strife, poverty, and a dominant religious culture that often largely denied his humanity. It is work that suggests regularly and beautifully that there is more here. I'm a fan of his, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for years. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Check it out. Thanks for making some
1: time. My pleasure. Where are you? Are you in um, on the west coast of the United States?
0: Yeah, I live in a town called Mart- Martinez, which is just so- uh, like just outside of Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been here nice the whole of my life. Where are, you, where are you calling in from?
1: So I'm in Ireland. I'm in the northwest of Ireland.
0: And are you normally working there? How often are you in the States?
1: Well, pre-pandemic... Um a lot yeah, I suppose there was um, maybe nine or ten trips a year for the last I don't know no 20 yeah. years so and um, from this October I'm going to be based in New York for six months. Um, as part of a residency in a book project.
0: Okay great um yeah, I remember mm. seeing a lot of uh, dates of uh, you being around here. I didn't know if you were doing the sort of transatlantic. Living in two places thing. Um,
1: kind of yeah. were. I, I kind of was, except, yeah, it was. I mean, I suppose it really felt like six months on the road and, and mo- most of that yeah. in the States um, on the road, but it was never just in the one place, unfortunately. It would be nice to have one place where it was settled, but it just, it was a lot of hotels or friends' couches. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, let's talk about location for a moment. One of the, uh, one of the, the okay. bits um, that I pick up in your work in general, um, but also from from you in conversation, listening to you in Q and A. This is a number of years ago at Calvin College, the Festival of Faith and Writing. Oh, yeah, location, man. I was uh, location uh, place has a significant is a significant theme for you. Um, yeah. When I say the word home. Yeah. Um, like, what does that mean to you? Is that a place? Uh, is that a people? Is it both things? When I talk about home, when I say the word home, what happens in you?
1: Um. Well, a, a whole variety of things, Justin. I suppose I first of all think of both Ireland and Irishness, and not that those mm. things are static. Um, Irishness can mean many things, Um but I, I do think of of the Irish language and I do think of the island of Ireland and the history and the mm. culture. I I mean, I, I don't think in any of my ancestry that there's anybody who's not from Ireland. I mean, um, yeah, like from parents to grandparents and all the way back. Like, I, there's no story hmm. of anybody from outside Ireland in our family. And I think that one of the things that that does is it gives you a profound sense of, of connection to the land. And one of the other things that that does is it gives you a profound sense of an inheritance of a of a legacy of being colonized and of language being taken and of the, the pain hmm. of an unnecessary famine and all of the ways within which the experience of being in a country that has had so much occupation in it for 700 years is alive yes. and well within you. So for me, locatedness is a way of looking at the world. Um, I mean, obviously there are some people who've had the the means to choose to go elsewhere in the world. In our family, that wasn't the case. And then there are other people who had that enforced upon them through all kinds of displacement and enslavement um, practices, European displacement uh, practices. Yes. That wasn't done in our family either so being located in the one place can mean all kinds of things sometimes it's an indication of extraordinary privilege other times it's an indication that your family didn't have the money to leave other times it's an indication of all kinds of other things too i will say that i'm curious why you what you notice in in location justin i i've had a bunch well, of americans say to me that they they notice location and how i talk and I, yes. I always think it's, it says a lot about the people, and the land, and the, the history that it comes from. A lot of Americans. That particular question, and, you know, and I don't,
0: I don't know if I'll have uh, the best answer for this. I think about it a lot. I think about location a lot. I mm-hmm. think it's potentially true. The more I talk with folks, um, for whom location is outside of America. I my mind goes back mm-hmm. to uh, a book by a philosopher named Bernard levy who uh, who followed in, in the footsteps of Tocqueville through the United States and he talked about the strange placelessness of American life that he would he would be among people who had a deep sense of American identity but that but the Americanism or mm-hmm. being an American had more to do with the idea of america and the dream of america than Mm. the place which in his estimation led to this massive gap between a love of the idea this happens in romance as well it's the idea of being in love versus actually being with someone that this odd tension in american life in which we seem to hate one another pretty well all the time (laughs) but we love the country we live in and this this is and so the the sense of placeless uh, placelessness well, you, among you Americans. You say you might love the country you live in. That's exactly right. This is the thing we say. And I wonder if we mean what yeah. we say by that, which is part of why I get into this. And that's part of why I I um yeah. of your works, and I have I, I really enjoy your work, but of your works, in the shelter has constantly resonated and I continue to come back. And it had to do because it has so much to do with place. Um and this line specifically if you don't mind yeah. me reading some a bit from your work. Um, You say uh, in a chapter called Hello to Trouble, (laughs) which is so good. You said, uh, the notion of reciprocality is an important one. For the shared space of Northern Ireland, our belonging is found by a reciprocal relationship of national, cultural, and social identity. And then this, based on relationship, acknowledgement of pain, and commitment for a different present, leading to a different future. It is as if the right answer to the question, what country are you from, is, well, let me tell you a story. This like long examination of place as not static and not just relational and not just political and not just emotional, that this, that's a, like, let me tell you a story as an answer to the question, where are you from, is has has been for me a hallmark of of your work publicly and specifically having to do mm-hmm. with place. Is that does that have to do with? And this is a far more direct question that I was planning on asking before. Does it have to do with uh, a, like a response to conflict that we don't want to settle into the particular moment because I don't oh, want to yeah. identify in conflict that I want to believe for a future? And does story have to be the answer if we're in conflict with, when it comes to place?
1: Um, it, I mean, so much about peace is about chosen compromise and which compromise are you willing to put up with in the name mm. of something else that you think is a goal that's achievable. So in the name of no more people dying in the name of Britishness or Irishness, I suppose mm. I have tried for, ever since I moved north to be able to tolerate the idea of Northern Ireland um, hmm. and the word northern ireland is like no is 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 it a country if it is a country am i a foreigner in it because i'm from the republic what is it you know like 100 years ago the british partitioned ireland and created these two jurisdictions and what what therefore does that mean about people who cross jurisdictions what about people in one who wanted the whole thing never to have been partitioned and so there's this serious question here When somebody says, well, all of us here in, and they mention the country affiliation they've got, they might say Northern Ireland, Ireland, the United Kingdom. And depending as to what they say, they might be talking about the weather or they might be talking Mm. about the temperature of the waters for swimming. But immediately a political reckoning and political belonging is put across in terms of what they think things should be, how they think things should be. And so therefore... For me, the question of where, where are you from now and where do you live is always going to involve, because I live in a place with contested territory as to who should own it, um, hmm. I, it's always going to involve a reckoning and a compromise and a complication. Uh, so that's partly what I'm saying within the context of that. And I don't hmm. think that that is only unique to the context of Ireland. One of the things yeah. that's frustrating for me is that Ireland is a place with a deep reckoning with its past. And where we have a deep reckoning not only with our past, but with Britain's involvement in our past. We don't reckon with mm. the problem of Irishness. We reckon with the problem of Britishness in Ireland. <laughs> yes. But what's extraordinary is how few British people know that and how so mm. many British people have no context within their Personal within their history curriculum at school, even people who studied history to a deep level have no context whatsoever about Britain's involvement outside of Britain. They learn about the Tudors, the kings and queens, and the Nazis. Done, brilliant. Rather than understanding, well, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Jamaica, South Africa, Hmm. Kenya, India, etc., and the list goes on. Of course, it does. Yes, and that is a one of the things we're doing in terms of place, is reckoning with another people who don't know the history of their involvement in our place. But yet Ireland and Britain are so close and the compromise of peace for British-identified and Irish-identified people in the north of Ireland is that we try to find a way to talk to each other in a certain kind of stalemate. That means that you're constantly reckoning with the context of, how do I speak about the reality and the brutality of empire without implying that my British-Protestant friend is personally to blame for it, even though they might be personally inheriting a certain privilege and entitlement as a result of that empire. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And so therefore, I suppose I'm uninterested in fighting with everybody. I am interested in A, the truth, Mm -hmm. but B, finding a way to be in relationship. And so therefore, we do what I'm doing right now, which is to tell stories about how you try to belong. I do hope that Ireland reunites. I am utterly uncompromising in the context of that. I think the partition of a country is a tool of empire. And I think, and I hope to see in my own life, the reunification of Ireland. But that won't solve the problem as to how we live with conflict. Partition and conflict start something that reunification and peace agreements don't end.
0: Yes. It's another phase of relationship that there's still work to be done. That There's no end to uh conflict as a as a as a form of relationship it just gets recontextualized in a different agreement
1: yeah totally
0: with relationship to story your 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 dominant expression has to do with poetry i'd love to hear you talk about poetry i've got a number of poets um lined up for the season um and I want to come through the doorway. We'll do a little bit more of this as, as a general practice later on. I would like to talk about poetry and what makes a thing poetry. Um, for, as you pay attention to words, whether it's structure or the flow of words or the use of words or the context, the difference between a paragraph like I just read here or other sections in this book or other works of yours, like, you know, Sorry for Your Troubles, there are more collections of poetry what makes a thing a poem what is what what does that what does it mean for someone who doesn't know and they figure perhaps poetry just has to do with a certain structure there's more to what makes a thing poetry
1: what makes a thing poetry well I'll I'll, I'll frustrate you Justin by saying that there's a few answers. You know, there is the kind of poem that you might have learned in school, maybe a poem that has a certain rhyming sequence, or you think a poem of five verses with four lines in each verse, and you look at it, and even without reading any of the words, you can go, oh, that's a poem, because it has a certain physical arrangement on the page. Now, you might read it and think it's a terrible poem, or it's a brilliant poem, but you can kind of recognize that it is one form of a poem. Um, but then you might look at something in that and go, well, that just looks like three paragraphs on a page. That's prose. But yet the person hmm. is saying, no, it's a prose poem. <laughs> um, yes. And so there is this, this area in between. And one of the things that's involved in thinking about a poem is that a poem is not trying to tell you everything that happened. A poem hmm. is a certain sparse choice of language and making available a visual um, repository of of language and imagery and sound Hmm. and feeling and emotion and and shock and confusion in order to create an experience in the person who's reading it. That mightn't tell you everything about a war, but it might tell you a lot about what a person felt during a war. Hmm. Or it mightn't tell you everything about a romance, but you might still feel like you're inside it if it's a love poem. Um, And that's one of the things you're trying to do in a poem is to communicate not just data, but something deeper than the data. A certain musicality, and that might be in rhyme, or that might be in a few words that all start with the same letter, or it might be in elongated vowel sounds that just make you feel like this poem is trying to sing. Um, Hmm. Or it might be in metaphor, it might say, you know... um, Like Emily Dickinson says, she dances like a bomb abroad. Extraordinary. What on earth does that mean? You know, she's not saying (laughs) she dances like a spring tree or she, you know, she's not saying something easy. She dances like a squirrel with a, having found its, you know, its, its stash of, of nuts from the winter. No, she dances like a bomb. And that is an arresting and shocking image that Emily Dickinson uses. Mm. And that too is the quality of poetry. So poetry is many things, but one of the things it's not is just seeking to relate data. It is seeking to be emotion in ink on paper that somehow creates some kind of experience of art, of dynamism, of understanding, or of confusion in the space between the reader and the poem. Because sometimes a poet wants you to feel I don't know what on earth is happening in my life. And rather than tell you that in a poem, they'll put a whole variety of words in a poem that don't make sense, that make you feel confused, that make you feel lost, maybe even make you feel stupid, maybe even trigger feelings of having been in an educational experience that really failed you. And that's the work of the poem because the person reading it goes, oh my God, I felt so frustrated reading that and I felt totally lost and it reminded me of being in situations where power was interested in shaming shaming me rather than supporting me. That's the work of the poem sometimes to go, you've got it. You've understood perfectly what this work is because you felt it. And so poems don't usually come with footnotes. There's a certain sense that you're trusting that people who are reading a poem follow into the poem. There's a Scottish poet, Don Patterson, who says that a poem is a little machine for remembering itself, (laughs) which I think is gorgeous. The idea Mm -hmm. that a poem is trying to remember itself.
0: Would you say uh, that poetry is vital?
1: Yes, because poetry occurs in every culture. There is not a culture without poetry. And so, therefore, it seems to have sprung up naturally in so many places, like music, like painting, like the arts, like dance. There are always forms of ways within which a person captures emotion in the art of the body, in the art of words, in the art of all kinds of ways. And so that speaks to us that not that it can be written into a strategic plan. Every country needs to write five poems a year, etc., but somehow that it occurs naturally, out of, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of shock, sometimes out of pain, sometimes out of great love, sometimes out of yearning, sometimes out of lament. Um, but it occurs in moments of profound human experience, and that is so worthwhile paying attention to. Um, not everything that's necessary can be measured, and that's one of the things about poetry and all art, that they can't be commodified into a, an economic system, even though, of course, they have an engagement with an economic system. People purchase mm. books, publishers make money, and I'm glad they do. But that is not the final or the first word when it comes to the necessity of poetry.
0: I pay attention to uh, what you're doing with uh, with the podcast. Um, and I have some questions about your experience of life Online, it's a thing I ask a lot of my guests, um, because of yeah, again because of the the, the the centrality of uh, of, um, uh, of of place uh, and location. The internet, uh, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, does. I don't I don't know if it presents or exacerbates or <laughs> or whatever it does but the, uh, but a sense of both place and placelessness there's a sen- there's this odd disorientation that comes with being online at least being online regularly as I talk to you know folks regularly can you talk about your experience of life online? Is it a place you feel comfortable? Is it a place you try to avoid? um like what does life online look like for you in in your work life and in your personal life I,
1: I you know you you'd said to me that you might be interested in that so i've been thinking about it i remember years ago i was part of a group of people who were part of an arts collective we used to do these kind of um theological engagements with art in a bar in belfast and somebody was talking about somebody that they knew and who was a friend of theirs and somebody else said are they a friend online or in real life and the person who was speaking said online is real life yes. And i thought that was such an interesting um response because one of the things they were yes. saying is that you know in online human communications people might go you you can pretend to be somebody who you're not or you can modify this or that or it doesn't involve all aspects of your life and you what Shirley MacMillan, who responded to say online Israel life, she's a writer herself, and she was saying, but that's true in all aspects. In friendships, you can hide yes. part of yourself. In marriages, you can you find a way to be a different version of yourself than you might be with your siblings or with your family. Or All parts of our lives are fragmentary experiences of a greater whole, and we are never the full whole of ourselves. Even when you're by yourself, there's a certain performance of who you are by yourself. And so one of the questions for me when it comes to thinking about the quality and the experience of online life is to just see that as the quality and experience of life. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a particularity, of course, and uh, the pandemic has made that um, very real in very particular ways. I've had all kinds of friendships with people who have continued to be very meaningful and important in my life. That started off as somebody sending an email or somebody tweeting and somebody connecting in a way where you think, oh, I'm really interested in what they're saying. I'm going to follow along or I'm going to read their book or I'm going to ask them why did they say that. Um, Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of ways within which curiosity can be evoked. Somebody wrote to me from Australia last year who'd been listening to Poetry Unbound and said that um, her daughter, who I think was only three or four Liked the sound of my voice so her mum, who was writing to me used to put poetry on bound on to get the daughter to sleep um and she wrote and she told me this and it, it was very funny she said you know you've a, a nice voice to send a four-year-old australian child to sleep with and um i wrote back and said this is a delightful message to get um i think it was nighttime <laughs> in australia it was kind of after afternoon in our Ar- or late morning in ireland and I mentioned to say, if you're ever looking for really, really good children's poetry for your daughter, have a look at Nonsense Rhymes by mm. Edward Lear. And I put a link to a few things from the Poetry Foundation. And then the next day she emailed back and said to me, I have been reading Edward Lear's Nonsense rhyme to my daughter all day, who chortles and asks mm. me to read them again. They're kind of like the original <laughs> Dr. Seuss, uh, magnificent. And Edward Lear made his money from mm. being a, a painter. He was a magnificent painter of wildlife for for, for biological manuals, instruction manuals. Um, and so his, his poetry is very alive with imagery. And so every now and then, maybe every two months, this woman emails me from Australia and tells me what poems she's lately been reading to her daughter what her daughter has said back we've never met but we also have met and that for me is a quality of online life it's like keeping up a correspondence I've got all of the letters of Emily Dickinson that I love to read that's a correspondence Mm -hmm. too I'm kind of Mm -hmm. uninterested as to whether it's done by hand or whether it's done by computer, the question for me is what's the imagination I have of who I'm writing to or communicating with Hmm. Um, like, and how can the language there be filled with meaning and life and curiosity and respect and challenge in a way that corresponds to to integrity?
0: Yeah. The the limitation of uh, of life online ends up being like the, the, the point of critique, but part of what you actually get into um, again um, in uh, in the shelter, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read another section and have you elaborate a little bit or maybe have you elaborate and mm-hmm. respond. Um, okay. Stories also have limits, it must be said. It is the flaws in the library of lives lived and loved that we most often live by. We hear stories of the past lives, of, I'm sorry, we hear stories of past lives and find ourselves marveling at how such fractured lives could have survived. We read things we wrote a year ago and wonder... At how things have changed, or our own ignorance, this is why I love old texts, especially texts like Scripture that have such complicated and shameful language. We read of abominations, and we read that Jesus said that God hates divorce, and we read that the demons were discerned. Uh, uh, were discerned where today we would diagnose something much less convenient. And we read of easy justifications of war and simple declarations about the end of the world. Um, You end this by saying, welcome to the changing story, it is never finished. Can you talk a little bit about your own sense of limitation as someone who puts things inward on page and has a responsibility or some form of responsibility to readers Like you're, you're bringing a limited offering, you're telling stories, the stories have limitation. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of putting these things in the world, the responsibility that you have to, to be read and to be taken seriously? What's that like for you to put down your own thing that a year later you will read and think,
1: oh, how things have changed? I'm very glad for the question. Um, so, like when you look at the etymology of the word story, hidden in the etymology mm-hmm. of the word story is the possibility of seeing and wisdom. So, I like to think mm-hmm. of story as a possibility of seeing wisely. Obviously, like a story as a certain sequence, you know? my own story has Mm. me in it as a character but other people too and it has a location and it has a plot you know something's going to happen if I'm telling a particular story you're going to wonder is this going to be funny or sad or will I respect or disrespect you as a result of this does Padraig want me to respect him more but actually I disrespect him more because I don't like his story all of these things are functioning within the context of story who am I using to paint as the villain of my story I might have a boss who I think was a complete asshole but I'm telling Mm. you the story and because Because you've been a boss before, you're going, I've actually got sympathy for that boss, and I don't think I'd ever want Padraig to work for me. You know, so all of these things are happening within the communication of story. And one of the things that I think is dangerous is that if you have an imagination that your story only has one interpretation point, and that I define the interpretation Hmm. point, so I'm going to tell you a story, and you need to find it funny, okay, that's Hmm. automatically going to imply a project of failure. Because if I say that to you at the start, you might have expectation, but you might also be thinking, what if I don't find it funny? Or, I don't like being told what to feel. Or, I much prefer being able to interpret things the way I interpret them. Just tell me the damn story. Stop stop trying to tell me how to interpret it. Hmm. And I think... I see that happening a lot within the context of national and political projects. I will tell you the story of where I'm from, and I'll also insist on on a singular interpretation of that story. Or religion. Mm -hmm. I will tell you the story about the deepest meaning of the universe, the origin of the universe, and you need to interpret it in the way that I do too. And what interests me in story is the possibility of continuing to see wisely recognizing, oh, I tried that for a while and then I realized that doesn't work for me or I have too many questions or the authorities or the teller of that story is too interested in control to actually tell a good story Mm -hmm. or the story is based on phenomenal prejudice or privilege or it's based on deep, deep um, hatred for a particular group of people Etc. And so I'm interested in looking at the way I tell a story and finding a way to communicate. This is how I'm telling this story now. Hmm. And therefore, I think one of the things I'm doing is being hospitable to a future self that might go, yeah, actually, I'm telling that story differently now. Um, and it's, it's hospitality <laughs> to the possibility of change that is of interest to me rather than thinking story is everything. Like a few years ago I was in New York City and I had to buy a um uh a, a strap for my watch. I had a swatch watch and I was walking by and I saw a, a swatch watch store. So I thought, perfect, let me go in and buy a strap. So I bought a strap for the watch and I was able to continue to wear it rather than carrying it in my pocket. And then the guy in the shop said to me, Hey, what are you doing on Thursday night? And I was like, My God. Um I, I don't know what I'm doing on Thursday night. And he said, do you want to come to a Swatch Watch party? And like, I knew a few things immediately. One of which was, I did not want to go to a Swatch Watch party. <laughs> but the other of which was, I really want to know what happens at such an abominable um, gathering. Yes. And I said to him, <laughs> yeah, I said, what happens at a Swatch Watch party? And this is, I think to the word what he said, well, we all get together and we just talk about our Swatch story. And I just thought, My God, what what fresh hell is this? Talk about our swatch story. It's just a damned watch. I could you know and I I am I am brand loyal. I am I'm ridiculously easy to sell to. Um, So I like swatch watches, but I hated the idea that some marketing consultant had come up with an idea of people sharing their swatch story. Hmm. You could almost hear the copyright symbol being present in it. (laughs) And I would hope that whoever went to that awful party actually ended up having a lovely conversation about politics or poetry or music. And years later, when people said, oh, where did you two meet? As friends, they go, oh, some party. I can't remember what it was about. But I hated Mm -hmm. the idea that uh, an economic system has branded story in a Mm -hmm. way where they think, hey, if we use this word, people are stupid enough that they'll buy it. And I I despise that, because that is not story that's open to change. That is not story that's open to self-critique, to evolution, to fundamentally recognising these are fragmentary parts of self that I can barely hold together. Yes. And that I think is part of what it means to be involved in the human story. I
0: want to take the, um, the kind of the, a part of that question that has to do with responsibility, your responsibility to your future self, a responsibility to your current readers and, and angle into a different part of this conversation uh, on your website is the, the, just the most interesting phrase about one of your roles um says uh he presents Poetry Unbound with On Being Studios. And then the next line says, and also has responsibilities in theology for on being, which is the most interesting way to talk about a role, that you have responsibilities hmm. in theology. So instead of describing the job, which you're welcome to do in the context of this question, what I want to do is for the next few minutes. I want to put some words on the table. It's kind of like it's it's a little bit of a practice in lexicon that I'll do with some of my guests because language shapes culture. Language defines, oftentimes, the way we love, see, know, and are known by the world around us. Part of the power of poetry, when it well, in ways it can be powerful, has to do with reorienting us towards or with particular words. So there are words that you use that you have a particular angle or meaning towards or with. So talk about theology for a moment. What What is theology, and how how is one responsible in theology?
1: Well, at its most basic, I suppose theology is words about God. And some of those words might be, does God exist? Um, so what? How do you know? What am I supposed to do anyway? What does that mean? Those hmm. are words about God, and therefore those are words about theology. And those are theological words. Hmm. Sacred texts are a collection of texts that are read through the lens of wondering, what do they say about God? What What is the theological contribution of these words? I also think that books like um, A Suitable Boy or War and Peace or <laughs> other books are also posing fundamental questions about the experience of being human, which is held Mm -hmm. within the broader context about is there a God? And if there is or if there isn't, what are we supposed to do with each other as we hold these questions? Because we don't know if there's a God, but what we do know is that there is a world where for thousands of years people have asked that question. And therefore the question Mm -hmm. is of fundamental curiosity to me, not because I'm interested in converting anyone to anything, I suppose I'm interested in becoming more distant to formal religion and closer to the questions about religion. And that for me is a, is a project of devotion, to become devoted to questions, mm-hmm. not as a silly, cynical exercise, but as a way to hold curiosity and wonder at the heart, and also the possibility of being open and understanding and not saying stupid things that burden people who are already burdened. And that is a long-term project of the On Being project. Um, Krista Tippett is uh, an extraordinary mind and conversation host and thinker about what does it mean to be human together in the particular times that we find ourselves in. And as a result of that, she asks people questions about their own life questions about their scientific discoveries or their historical proclamations or their social desires or their art or the words they use about God or the words they use about prayer or the words they use about human community or prejudice or pain Mm -hmm. or etc. And all of these things are part of a broader question about what does it mean to be human? And I think, what does it mean to be human, is fundamentally a question that will involve theology, because we know, whether we like it or not, that people have for many thousands of years engaged with the question of God when it comes to that. Yes. Is there meaning? Where did all this come from? What's the purpose of that? And so my role in On Being is um, theologian in residence, which just seemed ridiculous, especially when I'm in Ireland. So, I rathered to say, look, can we have it down as responsibilities for theology, which a lot of us within on being carry, primarily, of course, Krista, um, because there's this question that's being posed, a hospitable question, which isn't to say everybody will believe the same thing about God or the same thing about the question, but it is to say, let's ask this question in ways that open up imagination rather than try to recruit people or to shut people down or to be certain about things for which Mm. there is no certitude. That's good.
0: Which leads to the next word and question, is the word human. When I say the word human, (laughs) you don't have to answer the question because there's no pin to put in this question in terms of what it means to be human. But when I say the word human, what lights up in you? What does that word stir in you? Just the word human.
1: Earth, clay, Hmm. the ground. I mean, I think of the word humus that you find um, to refer to earth. I think of mythologies that speak of the human being made with perhaps uh, the spit of God and the the clay of the ground. I, I think of the corporeal reality of the human experience. One of the things that frustrated me enormously during my undergrad when we had a load of philosophy to do was all these abstract questions about what? about the human project, I think, therefore, I am, I this, I that. And so few of them seem to take uh, account of the corporeal reality that this person who was writing whatever their piece of philosophy was had a hand, at least one, with which they were writing. They'd used that hand to to eat, to clean themselves, to hold a child, to hit somebody. They'd used that hand, and just that hand, in one particular way in many different contexts. And I was really interested in trying to figure out how can we have an engagement that doesn't separate the imagination of the self from the physicality of the self. That Hmm. somehow we're not just a, a soul puppet. Somehow the idea of being human is about being in an enlivened body, which I might love or loathe, which might be the right body or the wrong body but somehow it is a physical experience and the physical yes. experience and the philosophical speculations that come from that are housed together in this human project.
0: Um, talk about politics.
1: What does it mean then
0: <laughs> to be political?
1: I think politics is about being public and looking at the ways within which uh, what I like in my private life can and should be delivered to me by a public structure. Hmm. Um I think I would like in a private life that in Ireland, our first language would be Irish, Um, not only in policy, but in practice. That's not going to be the case, of course. There's been too many hundreds of years of colonization for that to happen. But I have a desire to imagine what would it be like to preserve Irish as a spoken language in a way that is living and evolving, not just a kind of a historical artifact. And that is intensely a political aspiration. Because to know where we're at, I will need to understand how we got to where we're at. And that's a variety of things. The British Empire, Irish poverty as a result of an unnecessary famine, and the ways within which a population of people chose the language of a foreign country in order to think, well, this will help us survive and not die. And all of those things are Mm. recognitions of moving powers, of structures, and ways within which then we can think about the artistry of language in the everyday and ways to think about how can it be protected and preserved. So that is a political way of being. When I hear people Mm. say, oh, I'm not political, I don't get involved in politics, I think think we must mean very different things by that. Maybe they're not a member of a political party, and that's fine. Um, I'm not. I I vote differently Mm. depending as to what I'm voting about. But I, I think... To be alive is to be influenced by the power of politics. Hmm. And especially, <laughs> I think, I am interested in the ways in which those people who have been systematically oppressed for centuries are are going to speak about politics, what hope might look like, what a realistic hope might look like, um, hmm. what tolerable change would be possible, what would be ideal, who, who do you think you would never vote for? What would it mean to change your vote, etc.? All these things are, are of interest yes. to me because they're about the quality of life. You know, it's not just about do you pay a certain amount of tax? It's about where does that tax go? It's about in the United States, you know, I think about health care and schooling and guns. And I find that bewildering. And I find those things to be intensely political. The question is, to is somebody going to be able to stay alive? as a result of going about Mm -hmm. their daily business. And so politics for me is the ways in which we we use our language to shape something about the way we wish a society could be, or maybe even diagnosing something we think is wrong with a society. All of those are Mm. political statements. That doesn't mean that everybody who is political has to get into seeking to be in an elected office. That's, That's a lie. I am interested in being political through the lens of poetry because I know that that's what I can offer. I would be a terrible politician. I hope to be uh, a moderately tolerable poet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about that for just a moment, and we'll get kind of closer to an ending here. When you talk about being <laughs> hoping to well, be... I'm curious. <laughs> I mean,
1: well, what about you, Justin? What do you think about when you think about politics?
0: Uh, I think about the, um, the responsibility and... Um, weight of relationship with other human lives. It's the, the terrible and inescapable privilege of living life with other people. Um, that is, mm-hmm. that is what Paul, in my mind, that is what is political uh, is the constant navigation and negotiation of living with other people um, to be, constantly interconnected and far more interconnected than we know or if i think we're honest than most of us want to be i don't want my <laughs> i don't want or like that my particular actions or choices can have and do have the kind of impact in chain reaction and in extended relationship that they do it's much easier or much more um, it's a, it's it's like a sad really darkly hopeful dream that I can simply live and not have the kind of wave of impact that i I do the other side of that is the political question can I be responsible to all the waves that my life uh, sets in motion that's politics uh, for me yeah um w- How interesting in the long run um, what will it have meant you talk about being <laughs> moderately tolerable. Um, What will it have meant for you uh, to have uh, been successful as a poet? Um, not, in, not success in, in, this, in a particular way or not, and do you measure up to some external standard, but for you, for you to have been happy with your work as a poet, what will that look like?
1: you know i have a very definite answer to this justin and it's linked to oh, wow. a certain crisis in my 40s i um for, for in my mid 20s i started to train in conflict resolution and then i suppose up until my mid 40s i was working in conflict resolution in one form or another particularly in belfast I'd say half of that work was around the political aspect of Northern Ireland, the partition of Ireland, British presence in Ireland, etc., and the sectarianism and the violence of the violences of the last few centuries, and then especially the violence of the thirty years from sixty eight to ninety eight. I'd say half mm-hmm. the half the mediation work, conflict mediation, was that. The other half was conflict mediation work about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans lives. Um, I'm a gay man myself and trained in theology and in conflict and have been subject to terrible terrors of in my own life, and those things were ongoing. And so, I was interested in how theological disputes could be looked at and mediated through the lens of conflict resolution, and how people involved in religion could perhaps amplify and increase their awareness of um hmm. the uh, the impact that violence, imagination about a population of people, would have in on the bodies of those people. Um. And so those were the two areas that I'd been focusing on for years, really, Uh, as a mediator, as a leader within an organization, as a consultant, all kinds of ways. And I hit 40, and um, something changed in me, and I I Hmm. couldn't put it down as to what that change was. And a symptom of that change, which I knew was there, but I couldn't speak about it, not because I was shamed, but I didn't have the words, I couldn't describe. I suppose I became aware that I was bored of conflict. Hmm. Uh, and, and boredom became a very important signpost for me. And as the few years after that continued, and I was leading a big organization, um, a legacy organization, I became aware that I was much more interested in creating than resolving conflict. I was interested in the creative project. I was interested in people who were in conflict thinking, what are we going to do the day after our conflict's resolved? Yes. And what are some tools for survival that speak to human dignity and human potentiality? And... I realized more and more that I needed to write poetry. I'd always known this. I'd always needed to write and read poetry and have been doing so since I was a child. That had never Hmm. stopped. But I realized that strangely this hunger that I would have always said was powerful in me was now even more powerful than in me. And that Hmm. wasn't a hunger for publication or a hunger for accolade even though of course i'm involved in those things and seeking those things and trying to amplify and accolade poets who i admire greatly Mm -hmm. but deeper than that there was a fundamental recognition that for me poetry was a creative act and that somehow Mm -hmm. being involved in a creative loving act brought me deep to a sense of what was necessary now that i'd entered i suppose a period called midlife and that was a really fundamental change because it became clear to me that I would die. I don't wish to die young, but it became clear to me that I will die and I'll probably not have a choice about when that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what do I want to do? I, I had spent so much time mediating conflicts between people where it became perfectly clear to me that actually the biggest crisis in their life would be the possibility of that conflict being mediated they then have to face up to my god why have I created Hmm. fights all along why have I continued to make life rough for LGBT people why have I continued to stoke the fire of a sectarian conflict it's because actually strangely there's a there's a deep intimacy to being involved in the conflict there's a deep and predatory and pathological practice of identity that can happen within the context of conflict and I became convinced that for me the work was to to recognize that even conflict is leading it to poetry or any form of creative act. Mm. I I mean, I think parenting is a creative act. I think loving another person is a creative act. I think reading and expanding the mind is a creative act, etc. You know, I I don't think everybody needs to be a poet or needs to be seeking to be paid to be uh, some kind of artist. But I think looking at the possibility of seeing things emerge and seeing what is of life all around us, that is, that is what motivates yes. me and drives me and what I need desperately. Yes. A, a close friend died a year ago, and it was an utterly unexpected death. I loved him and had known him since I was 11. And on his anniversary, I took a walk on a beach that he and I had walked on when we'd planned a book that we'd written together. He died the day that we handed the manuscript in. And um, on his first anniversary, I took a walk along that beach and it was very sad, you know. It was not a year that I wished to live without Glenn. And I'm just a friend, one of his close friends, and he had many close friends. And then closer than that, of course, were his spouse and children. Um, and as I walked along the beach, I, I just started to look at signs of life. You know, there was hmm. there was the tracks of a bicycle where somebody had ridden along. Um, some kids had written their names in big letters. Summer twenty twenty one. Yeah, they'd written. <laughs> um, there was uh, a boy and his mum, and they were both blowing bubbles. It was a windy day, and they had these big bubble making things, bubble wands, I suppose. And yes. it, there weren't a lot of people on the beach because it's an Irish summer, so it was bloody cold. But there was all of these signs of life around me. And I don't know what Mm. to do by holding life in one hand and grief in the other, but it's the only way I know how to live. And that for me is held best in poetry and poetry Mm. is necessary for me. So for me to be successful in being a poet is to continue to hold grief and joy in one hand and the other and to continue to look at the world until I can't look any further, until I can't look any longer because it is an essential and a vital part of what it means for me to be alive.
0: Wonderful. Well, I wish you that very specific success then. Um, thank you for your time. This <laughs> is wonderful. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Um, do you want to hear a poem as we finish? I am conscious. I would
0: love to hear a poem. Why don't we wrap, one up, one. wrap it up exactly that way? That would be beautiful.
1: Here is what I know. When death's bell tolls again, I need to go and make something, anything, a poem, a pie, a terrible scarf with my terrible knitting. I need to write a letter, remind myself of any little lifelines around me. When death sounds, I usually forget much of what I learned before. I go below. I count the echoes of other people's happiness. I carve that hole in my own chest again. Pull out all my organs. Wonder if they'll ever work again. Stuff them back again. Begin again. Wonderful. Padraig, thank you
0: so much for your time. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. It's nice to meet you, Justin.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you would like to follow up with Padraig, you can visit podrigotuma.com or if you want to just check out the podcast we talked about called Poetry Unbound, you go to onbeing.org and from there navigate to the section under On Being. It's called Welcome to Poetry Unbound. If you would also like to be part of the team of people who make this podcast happen, navigate your way to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join us. We would love to have you on the team. Until next time.